invite you to turn to a few passages, but we're going to start in John chapter 3, the New Testament Gospel of John chapter 3. We're going to read some verses tonight that might be familiar to you or might not be, but I want to talk to you about a couple of places, a couple of places, and uh, one place is a place that we all like to think about and even talk about and dream about, the place that's beautiful. It's a place in eternity called heaven. It's a place that brings a lot of comfort to many of us. But there's another place I want to talk to you about tonight. It's a place that's not quite so comforting. And in fact, it's dark and bleak. And that's Detroit, Michigan. No, it's not <laughs> Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> that was for John Banta. I want to talk to you about a place called hell. And it's not a fun subject. It's not something that we like to think about much. Uh, I've heard some preachers talk about hell as if they're happy that people are going there. And I think that's a wrong attitude to take as we talk about eternity. So I want us to look at answers about eternity, what the Bible says about eternity, what the Bible says about heaven and hell. Many people live their entire lives not thinking much about the life after this one. And it's truly a serious subject. And so as we look at God's word tonight, I want you to be encouraged more than anything else. As we talk about the realities of these places, I want you to be encouraged and I want you to go out of here feeling good about what God has provided for us in eternity. So as we think about these subjects, I want to say first of all what needs to be said because these notions are not quite as obvious in today's world and in the American Christian church as they once were, and that is this, that heaven and hell are places of real eternal existence, real eternal existence. I've got several verses listed on the message outline. If you're looking at the app, I've got several verses listed. It's just splattered all throughout the, the Scripture, all throughout the Bible, that heaven and hell are places of real eternal existence. Now, we like to talk about heaven. Because it's easy to imagine this for most of us, right? It's a place of eternal bliss, a place of rest, a place, again, that gives us comfort. But just as we are comforted by the reality of heaven, we should be concerned also by the reality of hell. Because, folks, it exists just as well. And this goes to the heart of what we believe about God's word. Believers, I'm talking to you. It goes to the authority of the word of God in our lives. Jesus taught more about hell than he did heaven. It's an important subject. So you may not like what the Bible says about hell. You may not agree with it. You may not even believe what the Bible says about hell. All of those responses are fair, but what is not fair, what is not truthful, and what is not logical to deny is that hell is in the Bible. <laughs> and there's a notion in the American church that tries to dismiss its reality. And that's not fair to God's word. So I want us to look and talk about both of these subjects today, but we're going to begin with the reality of hell. And in John chapter 3, Jesus really talks about both of these realities. You're very familiar with John 3.16, aren't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But it goes on, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This is the whole reason why God sent his son to the world, not to condemn the world, not to judge it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, this is critical when we come to think about the offering of Christ as it impacts eternity. 
It goes on. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now, as we talk about the subject of hell, I want to paint pictures of both of these realities for us tonight so that we can, be, uh, we can leave here today being absolutely clear on what the Bible is teaching us, okay? There are some images of hell as contained in the Scripture. The first image is the image of desolation. Utter desolation, utter emptiness, utter loneliness, utter isolation. You know, there's a common kind of misconception in our culture that hell's just going to be one eternal party, with all my friends, that's a terrible, terrible way to think about this reality. It's not going to be one big eternal party with a bunch of friends. It's going to be isolation. The second thing it's going to be is darkness. The imagery of darkness is all throughout the scripture with respect to the reality of hell. Now, most of you know that I just got back a couple of weeks ago from a trip that I took with my son to New Zealand. We had an amazing experience as we traveled one night, as we were sleeping in the camper, we went around traveling in a camper van, and we would park at national parks, and then we would hike the next day. It was an amazing experience. But one night, I woke up in the middle of the night as we were in that camper van, and as I opened my eyes, there was complete darkness. So much darkness that I put my hand in front of my face, literally like this, and could not see my hand. I immediately had the thought that I had woken up blind. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that. I just I was kind of in this haze, right, from waking up from sleep. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I just went blind. I woke up. I can't see anymore. But I uh, opened the curtains to the camper, and I could see some light. But it was really, really dark. The image of darkness of hell is one that encompasses the whole reality of this experience. The third image is despair. Despair. The Bible paints pictures of burning fire and torture and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Utter despair. It's not, not a pretty picture, but it's a real place. And so we might say to ourselves, well, listen, if it's so bad and if God is loving and powerful, then why do people end up there? Let me share with you a couple of reasons. We're going to come back to this at the very end also. But here's the first thing that is true about the reality of hell for you and me. And that is hell reflects God's supreme respect for human freedom. You've got to understand this. And again, this is all over the scripture. There in John 3, Jesus said, The Son did not come to condemn the world, not to judge the world, not to bring judgment, but there is judgment. And what is that judgment? That light has come. And yet what happened? Men loved the darkness rather than the light. There was a choice between light and darkness. And Jesus said, men chose darkness. Men and women throughout the planet have chosen darkness over the light of Jesus. Jesus being the light of the world who offers forgiveness and deliverance from sin. The light has come in the world, but people loved darkness rather than light. So, the idea of hell reflects the very heart of God in giving you and me the freedom to choose him or not. God does not force himself upon us. 
He has communicated clearly his love and his offer for forgiveness. And yet you and me, men and women, boys and girls, have a choice. What will we choose? This language, again, is all over the New Testament. If you look in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, for although they knew God, he's talking about people who chose not to believe. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It goes on. Therefore, listen to the language. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Goes on, verse 26, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to do things that should not be done. I think these are some of the saddest words in all the New Testament. That word, God gave them up, means that God relinquished control. He gave up responsibility to these who chose to reject him. And so, God made it possible in the free will that he bestowed upon us for people to choose to love him and to surrender themselves to him or to reject him. Free will was necessary for human creation, and God knew that and he understood that. Otherwise, we would be robots. Otherwise, we would have no choice. We would be automatons that would just have to respond to God, but instead he endowed us with this blessing of free will. And hell reflects that. Reality. Here's another thing that is true about hell. I think that hell is a logical necessity. When we think about life and evil that occurs in this life, here's the thing that I believe. Hell is God's ultimate rejection of evil. And what I mean by that is that if we look at this world, we think, we think about all the evil that takes place in this world, and we can hide ourselves from it, and most of us do, but there is, there is so much evil and so much darkness in this world. We're, we've got a, a small team of people leaving on Monday morning for Thailand. And we are going to a ministry that our church supports who is rescuing young girls from sex trafficking in Thailand, which is an international hub. And we can barely wrap our minds around the realities of evil that is taking place in the world. Think about the genocide. Think about the Holocaust. Think about the murders. Think about the rapes. Think about the worst evil that's been perpetrated upon children And I say to myself, there is no punishment on this earth that would bring real justice to that. And this is just the evil that we know. There are people who do evil things that just get away with them. And so hell to me is a logical necessity because if we believe in God and if we believe that he is just, sin must be punished. And not everyone just gets off because God is love. God is also Holy. He is just. And sin will be punished. And the author of sin will be punished. The day is coming when God's rejection of wickedness will be public, will be decisive, and will be utterly final. That's what hell will do. And I just say thank God that that's going to happen. Because when justice doesn't occur in this life, it's going to happen one day. It's going to happen. So this is a picture of this place called hell. But what I want to say to you, I want to remind you that there is an answer. (laughs) There is another powerful reality, beautiful reality. There is another alternate reality for this life after this one, and it's called heaven. 
me share with you some images of this place called heaven. First of all, we read in John 14, 1 through 6, that it is called an eternal home. Jesus said to the disciples, just before he was to be crucified, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many, many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I am coming again to take you that you may be with me where I am. And I am the way to that place. I am the truth. And I am Father's house, the Father's home. What a beautiful picture of heaven. Place of eternal rest, comfort in the bosom of our Father in heaven. You know, Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz <laughs> licked her heels and said, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. Hoping to get back to Kansas is so true. There's no place like home. And we are only here temporarily. We are only aliens passing through. This is our temporary home. This is not our home. Our home awaits for us in heaven, and it's the Father's house, and he will welcome us there one day into eternity. It's also pictured as a great wedding feast. I really like this, and this has more meaning to me because about a year ago, we married off our first son, and we had a wedding feast. We had a wedding celebration, and it was fun, and it was worshipful, and it was meaningful, and we danced, and we had such a great celebration. It was a great reunion. People came from all over to be there to celebrate with us, and as I read this week and say this week, and I thought about the great wedding banquet that is described in the book of Revelation, the great wedding feast where the bride and the groom come together for eternity finally reunited and united for eternity. We are the church. We are the bride of Christ. And there's going to be a great wedding one day where we will be with our groom forever and ever. It's a place of fellowship. It's a place of friendship. People being around a table and celebrating in eternity. What a beautiful place. Place of community. That's what awaits us. And then the Bible pictures heaven as the end of all suffering. Thank you, Father. The end of all suffering. Let me read for you from Revelation chapter 21. Get this picture in your mind. It's such a beautiful picture of our eternity. The Apostle John is having this vision of what heaven and the millennial kingdom will be like. And he's describing here the new city, the new Jerusalem. Here's what he says about that place That is heaven for you and me. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. (laughs) You see, the veil now drops. What was hidden for our lifetimes has now been revealed. Paul would say in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he would say, For now we see in a mirror dimly. We only have a, a, a veiled understanding of heaven. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully, just as we are fully known. <laughs> it's going to all come to pass in this beautiful, amazing place. And God will be with us face to face, and we will be his people And he will be our God. And he will what? At that point in time, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes (laughs) and death shall be no more 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We put behind all of that suffering for eternity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them who love him. Jesus said in John uh, 14, he said, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Now think about this for a moment, okay? God created this universe, an amazing universe in which we see. The whole universe, he created this in six days. Jesus has been working on heaven for 2,000 years. What kind of place will that be? It's amazing to think about. This is why I can do a funeral. This is why I can sit by the bed of a dying person who is a believer and a follower of Jesus. And I can see in their eyes the absolute certainty that they have that they are going to be with their Father in heaven. And there's nothing like it. And I leave the room being encouraged, and I was the one that was supposed to be there to encourage And I'm the one leaving hopeful, and I was one to be there to give hope. Those in Christ die well because they're going to their Father in heaven. Now, with these realities, let me share with you God's heart about these two places. Because I know what you might be thinking is what we would all naturally think is, okay, well, what is God's response in all this? These are realities. What does he want for you and me? Well, the answer is obvious to us, but let's look at what the Scripture says. What is God's heart? It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God desires that no one would perish, that no one would go to hell. This is God's heart. This is God's desire. Look here at this passage in 1 Timothy. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's desire is there. This is what he wants. This is what he desires. But it is our choice. In those choices, we are in the process of becoming certain kinds of people. All throughout our life, we're making choices. And many of those choices have to do with God. I'm not talking about living a life of perfection. But I'm talking about in response to the God who loves us, that our lives have a moral trajectory to them. And it is possible, and it happens, you know this to be true, that people eventually become incapable of choosing joy or forgiveness or humility because they just choose against it. Just look at the person who rejects God. Just look at the person who rejects God's offer of love, his offer of life, his offer of forgiveness, not just once, but over and over and over again in life. They go to church, they hear the message, but they say no to God. They read the Bible occasionally, they hear about it, they say no to God. They get spoken to by a friend, they say no to God. They experience the wonder of God in nature, and they shut their heart to that. They feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit toward Christ and toward his love, and they say no to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. No, 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 all their lives. Now listen, hell is only giving people in eternity what they wanted the whole time in this life. In that sense, people get what they wanted all along. What is that? Life without God. 
Hell is not full of people who want to repent and be forgiven. So the question so many people ask in this world, I've heard it over and over again, why would a loving God send people to hell? It's a wrong question. There's a more accurate question than that. Here it is. Why would people choose hell over a loving God? C.S. Lewis said, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. God has done all he could apart from imposing his will upon our free will. He's done all he could. He has given us this creation He's given us, first of all, our creation, our human creation. I went to a hematologist today, and this, she was an Indian doctor, very, very intelligent. She was describing how uh, you know, the cells work together and how they match up and, and, and how certain cells match with others in order to fight diseases. And I was just like, this is amazing. I'm sitting here thinking about God. Thank you. And it was a little moment of worship there. I'm thinking about the human body is this amazing reflection of the glory of God. Think about the, the creation of our universe. Went to New Zealand and saw the panoramic mountains. God spoke those things into existence. The psalmist says, the heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. God has given us this as a witness of his love and who he is. He has given us his word, a written record in black and white for you and me to understand who he is and his love for us. And ultimately, he has given us his son in the cross In fact, this is what Jesus says to you and me. Jesus says, you'll go to hell over my dead body, literally. That's the only way to get to hell, is over the dead body of Jesus. And he offers himself as a sacrifice for the sin that separates us from God and the sin that separates us from the love of Christ and the sin that sends us to hell. He has done all he could to shout from the mountaintops that he loves us and that he does not want us to spend eternity apart from him. That's what he's done. And that's why what we're doing as a church is so important. I want to share with you as we close one of the most marvelous statements in all of Scripture. (laughs) And it it was in response to the Apostle Peter who often stuck his foot in his mouth. But this time he got it right. Jesus came to the disciples and said, Who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up. Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Bingo, you got it right. You got that one right. It's for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. But our fa- my Father in heaven has. And then he goes on to say this. Look at this in Matthew chapter 16. He says, and Peter upon this rock. What did he mean by that? He meant upon the rock of Peter's faith. He meant upon the rock of faith, the rock of people's faith in him. Upon this kind of rock, upon this kind of faith, I will build my church. And what does he say? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, here's the deal. We often think of the church as being kind of a huddled, fearful group of people in a little fortress while the powers of hell are kind of attacking and raging all around us. Jesus is turning this upside down, this kind of thinking. 
he's painting a whole different picture. He, he says this, hell itself is the kingdom that's huddled together in fear behind its gates, behind locked doors. And he's painting the picture of, and here comes the church led by Jesus. He is building his church, and it's battering against the gates of hell, and it's battering through it. And Jesus is claiming human beings from the kingdom of darkness, life by life, one by one. He is winning that, that war. And that's why we must fight for the church and never forget our mission. Because we are in the gate-busting business. That's what we're called to. And every time someone comes to faith in Christ through the ministry of this church, the gates of hell are just getting battered over and over again because eternities are being altered. That's what's happening. This is the church on offense, not on defense. And God is calling this church the Brook Church, and we're going to respond. We're going to be that kind of church with unhindered passion and boldness and courage and faith to say that the gates of hell cannot prevail against God's church. And right now, right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's saying, come on, church. I've empowered you. I've gifted you. I will provide every resource for you. Watch, pray, work, love, strive. Knock some gates down. And I will build you. And the gates of hell will not be able to prevail. So, Will you, will I pray for somebody? Will we be salt for somebody? Will we share our faith? Will we invite people? Will we be in that business that Christ has called us to? And I want you to leave this place tonight with the absolute certainty in your heart that heaven is your eternal home and that Christ has provided it for you. So I want to ask you to bow your head. And with your head bowed, I want to ask you to just reflect and respond. I want to remind you that Christ has called us to this great, great work. And we need to respond to the calling. And I want to ask you to pray and share and love and live in such a way that those around you will know and understand the love of Christ. That you'd be used by the Father in heaven in this church, through this church, beyond the walls of this church to alter the eternities of those that God has called us to reach. If you're a believer here today, I want to remind you, in this life there is trouble. But take heart. Be of good courage. A heavenly home awaits you. 
You'll be reunited with family. You'll be in a loving community for eternity. You'll be face to face with your Savior. Oh, what a day that will be. A day of rejoicing that will be. So, Father, comfort those who are here who may be struggling. Remind us all that this is our temporary home that we're just passing through. I know the days seem long sometimes. And the work gets weary. But help us, Lord. Help us to lift our eyes to heaven. To see the beauty of what awaits. And to live on this side of the veil with power and with strength, with endurance. Forgive me, Father, for being so weak at times. Help us all, Lord, to feel the power of the Holy Spirit as we live and move and have our being in you and as we seek to be the bride of Christ that you've called us to be. Thank you for our dear people. Pray that you would use us in the lives of others. I pray that if there's anyone here tonight who has never trusted Christ as Savior would come to saving faith and that their eternity would be transformed even tonight. Trust you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Gosh, thank you so much for being here. We're going to have our final time of worship, our final song. As we close worship, we're going to have our offering time also, and we're going to have our time of prayer, opportunity for you to respond. Uh, we're going to have our prayer team here to the front you're here tonight, you'd like prayer for anything that's on your heart and mind. Maybe someone is on your heart and mind that you're thinking of and praying of. Someone that may be outside of faith in Christ. You want prayer for them. Feel the freedom to come forward and pray with one of these people who would be honored to pray with you. If you're here tonight, you don't know Jesus as your Savior. I want to invite you to come forward as well. Talk to one of these people. Tonight, you can leave this place having trusted Christ, being forgiven of your sins and knowing that your eternal home is in heaven. They'll be honored to speak with you and pray with you, whatever's on your heart. Feel free to respond.